and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is the author of many novels, including My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, and A Tale for the Time Being. And as you'll hear, British Columbia has played a special role in her writing life. Here she is to introduce herself. Um, My name is Ruth Ozeki, and I am the author of The Book of Form and Emptiness. You know, all of my books, I I was so honored. I guess what I'm trying to just say is that I'm I'm so honored to be, uh, you know, shortlisted for this prize because uh, so many all of my books really have have are rooted in in BC, you know. Even though I'm, you know, it, you know, I'm, I'm considered to be an American Canadian writer, and it's true, I am. I have dual nationality, but you know, I didn't really become a novelist until I until I moved to BC. That's where I wrote my first book, and um, that's where I've written all of my books. So it 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 really means a lot to me, and and so I just wanted to say thank you for that. In our conversation. Ruth talks about how the book of form and emptiness found her and the importance of libraries. Ruth starts our conversation with a reading from the book of form and emptiness. In the beginning, a book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first, laying itself on the line in an act of faith from which a word takes heart and follows drawing a sentence into its wake. From there, a paragraph amasses, and soon a page, and the book is on its way, finding a voice, calling itself into being. A book must start somewhere, and this one starts here. A boy. Shh, listen. That's my book, and it's talking to you. Can you hear it? It's okay if you can't, though. It's not your fault. Things speak all the time, but if your ears aren't attuned, you have to learn to listen. You can start by using your eyes because eyes are easy. Look at all the things around you. What do you see? A book, obviously. And obviously the book is speaking to you, so try something more challenging. The chair you're sitting on? The pencil in your pocket? The sneaker on your foot? Still can't hear? Then get down on your knees and put your head to the seat, or take off your shoe and hold it to your ear. No, wait, if there are people around, they'll think you're mad, so try it with the pencil first. Pencils have stories inside them, and they're safe as long as you don't stick the point in your ear. Just hold it next to your head and listen. Can you hear the wood whisper? The ghost of the pine? The mutter of lead? Sometimes it's more than one voice. Sometimes it's a whole chorus of voices rising from a single thing, especially if it's a made thing with lots of different makers, but don't be scared. I think it depends on the kind of day they were having back in Guangdong or Laos or wherever, and if it was a good day at the old sweatshop, if they were enjoying a pleasant thought at the moment when that particular grommet came tumbling down the line and passed through their fingers, then that pleasant thought will cling to the whole. Sometimes it's not so much a thought as a feeling, a nice warm feeling, like love, for example, sunny and yellow 
But when it's a sad feeling or an angry one that gets laced into your shoe, then you better watch out because that shoe might do crazy shit like marching your feet right up to the front of the Nike store, for example, where you could wind up smashing the display window with a baseball bat made of furious wood. If that happens, it's still not your fault. Just apologize to the window, say I'm sorry to the glass, and whatever you do, don't try to explain. The arresting officer doesn't care about the crappy conditions in the bat factory. He won't care about the chainsaws or the sturdy ash tree that the bat used to be. So just keep your mouth shut. Stay calm. Be polite. Remember to breathe. It's really important not to get upset because then the voices will get the upper hand and take over your mind. Things are needy. They take up space. They want attention, and they'll drive you mad if you let them. So just remember, you're like the air traffic controller. No, wait, you're like the leader of a big brass band made up of all the jazzy stuff of the planet, and you're floating out there in space, standing on this great garbage heap of a world with your hair slicked back and your natty suit and your stick up in the air, surrounded by all the eager things. And for one quick, beautiful moment, all their voices go silent, waiting till you bring your baton down. Music or madness, it's totally up to you. The book. So start with the voices then. When did he first hear them? When he was still little? Benny was always a small boy and slow to develop, as though his cells were reluctant to multiply and take up space in the world. It seems he pretty much stopped growing when he turned 12, the same year his father died and his mother started putting on weight. The change was subtle, but Benny seemed to shrink as Annabelle grew, as if she were metabolizing her small son's grief along with her own. Yes. That seems right. So perhaps the voices started around then too, shortly after Kenny died? It was a car accident that killed him. No, it was a truck. Kenny O was a jazz clarinetist, but his real name was Kenji, so we'll call him that. He played swing mostly, big band stuff, at weddings and bar mitzvahs, and in campy downtown hipster clubs, where the dudes all wore beards and pork pie hats and checkered shirts and mothy tweed jackets from the Salvation Army. He'd been playing a gig, and afterwards he went out drinking or drugging or whatever he did with his musician friends, just a little toot, but enough so that on his way home, when he stumbled and fell in the alleyway, he didn't see the necessity of getting up right away. He wasn't far from home, only a few yards from the rickety gate that led to the back of his house. If he'd managed to crawl a bit further, he would have been okay. But instead, he just lay there on his back in a dim pool of light cast by the street lamp above the gospel mission thrift shop dumpster. A long chill of winter had begun to lift and a spring mist hung in the alleyway. He lay there, gazing up at the light and the tiny particles of moisture that swarmed brightly in the air. He was drunk, or high, or both. The light was beautiful. Earlier in the evening, he'd had a fight with his wife. Maybe he was feeling sorry. Maybe in his mind he was vowing to be better. Who knows what he was doing? 
Maybe he fell asleep. Let's hope so. In any case, that's where he was still lying an hour or so later when the delivery truck came rattling down the alleyway. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I've been asking a, an oddball icebreaker question, um, and I've been told it's maybe the hardest question I ask. So okay. you're warned. I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, <laughs> maybe. If you could read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Okay, fine. You're going to throw me a question <laughs> like that. I know exactly what I'm going to answer. Um, I would read um, The Riverside Shakespeare, which is the collected works of William Shakespeare, <laughs> including all of the plays and all of the sonnets, as well as various kinds of scholarly articles about the plays and the sonnets. And it is one volume, and I have it right over there on my bookshelf. And obviously, you know, it, it's the book I would take to a, you know, to a desert island. It, it has all the poetry that, you know, and all the beautiful language that one could want, you know. And if I was condemned to reading, you know, one book over and over again, that's probably the one I would choose because I would never, I think I would never get tired of it. You're not the only one to have picked a collected works. That's a, <laughs> I know, a right? sneaky but good choice. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, I mean, there I, I'd have to think. You know, if it was if if you if you put limits on that and said no collected works, um, I, that would be difficult. Uh, that yeah. would be hard. Yeah, yeah. I don't put too many. It's hard enough already without putting more constraints on exactly it. <laughs> exactly the copy of the riverside shakespeare that you know that i would take with me you know to the de uh, to the desert island is um or deserted island is is um the one that i had in college oh, wow. and so it's got all of my marginalia and my little notes you know and little things that the professor said and you know um all of my you know sort of excitement my initial excitement at discovering you know shakespeare so there's you know lots of different little marginalia that says symbolism exclamation point you know <laughs> <laughs> pathetic fallacy exclamation point you know <laughs> All the Which exclamation is, points, all that right. enthusiasm. That's right. That's right. So that's part of the book, you know, yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, all right. Let's chat about the book of, of form and emptiness. Sure. I, I mean, Ruth, I loved this book. Aww. I didn't know much about it um, when I picked it up. I, I'm one of those people who never reads the jacket before I start a book. And so I, I don't either fell yeah. into it. And I, what a joy. It was just, Aww. yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to ask how the book started, but but as I got to the end, I realized that maybe I should be asking how the book chose you, because <laughs> if we're listening to this book, books have agencies, agency just as writers do. So how did this book choose you? Ah, you know, it's it, I really think that's kind of true that um, and, and the more I, you know, the longer I worked on this book, I mean, this book and I, you know, lived together for eight years. Um, it, that's about how long it took. And, you know, books usually come to me as voices. Uh, there's usually, it, sometimes it's a voice of a character. Uh, sometimes it's a voice or the attitude of the book itself. And in this case, it was the latter. It wasn't a particular, well, actually, now this is an interesting question. Um, because the, uh, it was, it was kind of like the tone of the narration came to me first this this kind of 
questioning tone, um, which hopefully you heard a little bit of in the, you know, in that the first bit of the reading, um, this idea that a book is going to kind of emerge out of emptiness, right? And so a book isn't going to quite know what it's doing at the beginning of its narration. Um, so it, you know, there's a little bit of a sense of maybe making a guess and a false start and then an immediate correction. So in this case, the book's, you know, the book is is talking about Kenji's death, the father's death. And, um, you know, it was a car that hit him. No, no, it was a truck. Right. And and of course, you know, as I'm saying this, I, I'm realizing that what I'm describing here is what's going on in the writer's mind. Right. You know, as as a writer is writing a scene or or conceiving of a character, um, there's a sense of, you know, like, oh, oh, yeah, it was it was a car accident. It was a happened in an alleyway. It was a car. No, no, no. It was a truck. Right. And so you kind of, you know, you're sort of correcting yourself. But with this book, I really felt like the agency was somehow outside of me, um, perhaps more so than other books. And and something that's so interesting about this book is, in a way, you wrote two books because <laughs> this book holds another book inside it. Um, and it, the book is called Tidy Magic, which uh, seems like a riff on Marie Kondo's The life-changing magic of tidying up. Why did you decide to include another book within your book? Yeah, you know, I had this idea as I was writing this book that, um, or the book had this idea as it was, you know, parasitizing my brain, um, that, that all books are kind of connected. You know, maybe they're like, you know, they're like, mushrooms or something, you know, they're, they're connected in this kind of rhizomatic, you know, subconscious subterranean world, and that they can kind of that they're always in conversation with each other, right. And in this case, I was writing, I, I knew that I was writing about a family, um, and about, about a little boy who heard the voices of objects speaking to him, right. And, and I also knew pretty early on that his mother, Annabelle, was becoming a bit of a hoarder. Um, you know, she's just lost her husband, who she loves very much, and um, is, is, you know, sort of dealing with her grief through a lot of retail therapy. And, um, and, and so objects, things are a problem in their life. And, you know, right around this time when I was when I was working on this, I was very interested in the phenomenon of Marie Kondo, um, because, you know, really, she's what she's talking about is also, um, you know, the relationships that we have with objects and how sometimes these relationships can be very problematic. Um, but of course, in Japan, Japan being a more animistic culture, um, you know, the, the, the Shinto roots of, of Japanese culture um, really sort of are very much uh, sort of what um, very present in even in, in contemporary life. And and so there is this sense that objects have spirits. Right. And so this was interesting to me. And so it seemed to make sense that there would be um, a book within a book. And in this case, it's, uh, you know, it's Tidy Magic. And it's a book that has its own agency, right? Um, that book really wants to help Annabelle and really wants to help Annabelle, um, you know, deal with her uh, her over-attachment to, to things, right? Yeah. Um, so in one way, the book of form and emptiness is Benny's book, right? The, that book is trying to help Benny. But, you know, Annabelle needed a book of her own. So she got one. 
I love I love this uh at this idea of book I mean books are they're these things that are in our lives to help us and the the right books seem to find us in the right moments and yeah exactly it, yeah 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 exactly I wanted to ask you about libraries because mm-hmm. I mean the library becomes such a an important place in this book and it I mean it's an important place I think for so many of us um what have the what has the role of libraries been in your life Libraries have always been a place of, you know, freedom and escape um, ever since I was quite little. Um, my mother loved, she loved libraries. And um, in the summer, uh, during summer vacation um, in particular, we would, every, every week, a couple times a week, she would take me to the library and we would just go there and hang out in the library. You know, I, I grew up at a time where you know, my parents didn't really play with me, you know, <laughs> um, it was, it, it's different, right? It was a different, it was a different era and parents didn't really, you know, get down on the floor and play with their kids in the same way that, you know, that parents do now. Um, and, and so, but our way of playing together was going to the library together. And um, she would take me down into the basement, which is where the children's section was. And it was this huge room, or it seemed huge to me. I was little, you know, quite tiny. And, um, you know, it was this huge room filled with books and these very, very nice ladies who owned all of the books and they would just give them to you. Right. And this just seemed like a miracle to me that I could just go down and I could choose any book that I wanted to and take it up to the nice lady. And she would, you know, she would let me take it home for a week or whatever. Um, And, and so early on, I, I, had this idea that, you know, when I grew up, I wanted to be a librarian. I wanted to be one of those ladies, you know, who owned lots and lots of books. Little by little too, you know, my appreciation for libraries became a little bit more sophisticated, but not too much more sophisticated because that's really what libraries are. You know, they're, they're, and when you think about it, they're incredibly radical places. I mean, uh, you know, if, if, if all of the libraries, you know, were suddenly, you know, if, if there, if, if libraries had never been invented, right. And politicians today, some politician today thought, you know, came up with this idea of like, you know, spending millions of dollars to build a beautiful building and fill it with books and then allow people to just come in and they can take the books and borrow them for free. Right. Like that would never happen now. Right. So these libraries, the libraries that we have are treasures, you know, they're, they're incredibly precious places. Um, and, and we, you know, we need to, we need to do everything we can to protect them. I'm a huge fan of the Vancouver Public Library um, and I have a long history there. Um, it's where I did the research for my very first novel, My Year of Meats. This was in a pre-internet time when, you know, you actually had to, you know, go you know, physically go to a library, you know, and take out like a book in order to do research. Right. And, and, um, and I spent, I spent, you know, hours and days in, in that library. And I really, I grew to love it. Um, and with uh, my second book too, All Over Creation, I did a lot of the research and writing of it in the Vancouver Public Library. Um, and, and in fact, in this book, the Book of Form and Emptiness, you know, there, there is a library in this book. And that library, many aspects of that library were based, um, are based on the Vancouver Public Library. 
I was going to ask, actually, because when I saw that that illustration of the shape of the library and that it's it, I think you described it in the book as as looking like a coliseum. It was like, oh, I think I know that library. That's right. That's right. I actually, you know, when I was conceiving of the the library, one of the things that was important to me when I was writing this book was to not have it tied to a specific location. You know, I didn't want it tied to a specific country or a t- specific, you know, uh, city. Um, so it was kind of generally in the Pacific Northwest. And um, so my first, you know, inspiration for that was very much the Vancouver Public Library. Um, But then I decided, and I was also um, fascinated by the architecture of the Seattle Public Library, the Rem Koolhaas designed library. Um, Kind of fascinated. It's an amazing library. It's a wonderful library, but there's something kind of disturbing about the architecture too, even though it's very, very beautiful. So I I kind of, you know, used bits of both libraries and, and formed this kind of fictional library uh, from the two. But one of the things in particular that was interesting to me about the Vancouver Public Library was that um, it was the site of the last public bindery in North America. And um, the you know, as increasingly, you know, magazines started to go digital and, you know, archives, certainly magazine articles, you know, uh, archives were, were all, you know, becoming, were all being digitized. The need for an actual bindery in a library um, was really, you know, they'd become obsolete. And although there was a huge uh, pushback, though, when the Vancouver Public Library tried to, you know, was closing um, the the bindery in in Vancouver, um, you know, people were really attached to that bindery. And um, just before it closed, I, I actually, right after it was closed, when it was, you know, when nobody was, when it wasn't operational, um, I got to tour the bindery. And so all of the descriptions in the Book of Form and Emptiness that, you know, and the scenes that are set in the bindery are sort of based on, you know, my memory of, of that room, which was, you know, it really felt kind of haunted and, and just so beautiful. So that was a huge inspiration for me. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit. You actually touched on it in your reading because you had, you know, the listening was, you know, Benny's telling us to listen. And I, I, I really came away from the book, like thinking about that kind of listening and hearing because, you know, there's scenes when he's with, um, his therapist, whose name's escaping me. Dr. Melanie. Yeah, Yeah. Dr. Melanie. And, you know, she's, she's hearing but she's not really listening and that comes that's you know happening over and over again for these characters where people are listening but they're not hearing and and I you know it it seems like it's something that's happening so much in the world that we're living in lots of people talking lots of noise but are we really hearing each other and and I wondered about that the role of that in the book and and what you think of that listening and hearing no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, there, there's just so much, there is so much noise in the world, right? And, and it takes, it takes time and it takes focus to really listen, to really hear. 
Um, and we've really, I mean, as we know, we're losing our ability to focus on anything, right? We're all just clicking on to the next thing. I find myself doing it all the time. Um, so this is something that, of course, concerns me. Um, and one of the things that I, I love about being a writer is, and being a writer who whose work is, you know, sort of published and, and out there is that, um, you know, I get to do readings, you know, it, it, and especially, I mean, you know, now we're talking on the radio and, and listeners will be listening, you know, to this, you know, it, on some sort of device. But, you know, when you're actually in person um, and doing a reading to a room full of people, it is the most magical and wonderful and moving experience, right? Because I think on some level, we have a, we have a memory of being read to you know, uh, some of us, you know, do anyway. And even if we don't, there's just some, there's some kind of magic in, in that dynamic of reading out loud and then being read to. People really listen, you know, people really sink into it and listen. And that is just such a joyful experience. I love listening to people read. I mean, it's one of, you know, I, I also love audiobooks. you know, when they're done well, um, it, it's, it's really special. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other thing I wanted to ask about was, um, like, I really enjoyed the way the book kind of, it really encouraged me to embrace ways of seeing the world and ways of seeing each other and how there are other ways of, of seeing the world. You know, we, we've, how we see neurodivergent people has really changed. Um, you know, there's, there was a book I read a few years ago that talked about, you know, we really need to embrace people Mm -hmm. on the autism spectrum because they, it's not wrong. It's just different. different. And, and I, you know, we have Benny and the bee men who see the world differently uh, in this book. And I, I wondered why that was important for you, you to explore in, in this project. Yeah. Um, it, it, I think if there was one thing, you know, one kind of central uh, concern that, that I had, that the book had, um, it's, it's exactly this. And this too goes back to your first question about, you know, where did this book come from? And it came from an experience that I had. Uh, it was a voice hearing experience that I had. You know, of course, as a, as a writer, I hear voices all the time, but they're very, I hear them internally. I hear them inside my head as if with my mind. But after my dad died, I had a different kind of voice hearing experience where, you know, I would be doing something um, just whatever, something around the house, like washing the dishes. And I would hear him behind me clearing his throat. And he had a very distinctive way of clearing his throat. And then he would say my name, you know, and, and when this happened, I, you know, I would turn around and look expecting to see him. And then it would hit me, you know, when he wasn't there, I'd remember, oh, of course, cause he's, he died. Right. And, and so this, you know, this was a uh, very startling um, because it was, very different from any other voice hearing experience I'd had in, in that I was hearing, you know, I was very much hearing his voice as if with my ear, as if he were standing outside me. Right. Um, And it happened maybe four or five times, five or six times, maybe, um, you know, in the, in about a year or so after he, after he died. Um, And each, each instance was, was very quick, you know, and I didn't really think too much of it. Um, it. It happened and, it was over in a flash and I just went on doing whatever it was that I was doing until the next time it happened. And then it's like, Oh yeah, this has happened before. And then again, it would just kind of pass. Right. 
And so I started thinking about this and I started thinking about how, you know, this is one kind of, of voice hearing experience. And, um, you know, and I have, I have friends who are voice hearers who hear voices like this, not just of their father, but, you know, a whole array of voices. Right. And, and so this kind of gave me a little bit more of a sense of what their experience was like. So that was, you know, that was, um, that was really helpful to me. Um, And then I was thinking about too, about the, you know, the kind of internalized neurotic voices that we all have, right? The voices that are telling us that, you know, whatever it is that we're doing, it's not enough, or it's not good enough, or, you know, the voices that are telling me that, you know, oh, this idea is for a book is really stupid. Nobody's going to want to read it. You know, why don't you go out and, you know, go get a job, you know? (laughs) And so there's, you know, these kinds of neurotic, um, uh, you know, the inner critic type of voices too, right? So we actually, I think all have an array of different voices that we hear or are capable of hearing. The problem is that in our culture, you know, we've decided the the bandwidth is very narrow of, you know, of what's considered to be normal, right? And, um, and a lot of these voices that I'm describing fall outside that very narrow, you know, definition of normal. And, you know, when you think about it, this whole idea of normal, right, is, is something that we made up. It's a cultural construct, right? It's a, in other words, it's a fiction, so why can't we, if that's the case, just widen it out and, and allow normal to be more generous, more all-inclusive, more compassionate, more, you know, more allowing of, of people's lived experiences. And, and so this is something very much that was at the heart of, of this book, I think, and, and this exploration, because, you know, as somebody who, you know, I, I'm, I feel that I'm really lucky in that I hear the voices of my characters speaking to me, right? And I'm also lucky that I live in a in a culture and a society um, that uh, says that that's okay, you know, because I can very well imagine a kind of dystopian scenario where you know, hearing fictional characters talking to you and and then writing them down and then you know, reading these books <laughs> that are lies, you know, that this could be a, you know, this could be a crime, you know, and you I could be imprisoned for this and you could be imprisoned for reading them. You know? yeah. I can imagine that. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that women were thrown in asylums for reading books. So <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. I love Margaret. I love Margaret Atwood's um the unburnable book. Did, you know, she she made that she made this single copy of The Handmaid's Tale, or she had it fabricated, a single copy of The Handmaid's Tale that was unburnable, right? <laughs> that that you know you could torch it, you could you know it was indestructible, and um, it, you know, and and it was auctioned off as a benefit for Penn. But yeah. it you know it is a wonderful concept because you know yeah I think we're going back to that you know we're going back to a, a very intolerant kind of mindset and um and it's dangerous so um you know i my my feeling is i want to you know i i think we need to you know try to expand and and you know be more inclusive um not not exclude not go into kind of a narrowing um you know intolerance yeah I mean, and it seems like what you what you're speaking to in the book is this this need to like come together um, because, you know, there are all these 
forces at work in, in the book and in the world that we live in. There's climate change and housing and mental illness. And then there's just the grief and trauma that we all live with on the day to day. But in the midst of all of this, there is joy and happiness and, and relationship. And and I wondered if you could speak to that part of the book, the way it all just kind of comes together and and speak to the and speaks to that importance of interconnectedness. Inter- um, that's exactly yeah, that's exactly the right word. Um, you know, the the th- this really is rooted in some, you know, in in Buddhist teachings of interdependence, interconnectedness, interbeing is Thich Nhat Hanh's way of talking about it. Um, this idea that, you know, we sometimes feel like we are individual selves you know that that we are individual selves with identities that are you know fixed and you know and lasting but it, it it's not true you know i mean impermanence is is the you know the quality that we all share we're not you know we're just here briefly right um but the, and and you know that's a little that that's hard to wrap one's head around right um but the the wonderful thing of course is that we are you know we don't exist alone either that we all exist in relationship to each other um and you know and and that really is i think you're right the the again the kind of um the realization that the characters Benny and Annabelle both I think come to in the book is that um you know that they have that there are others around and maybe the most unlikely others right but there are others around and uh and that the healing um comes through the connection right and and that's yeah that that's I I think that was a very important part of of the book That was Ruth Ozeki, and her novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, is a finalist for the 2022 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, please visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us, of course, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Jordan Abel. Jordan's book, Nishka, is a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and the 2022 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.